Hello, I'm Michael McMullen. Welcome once again to the World Snooker Tour podcast. Now, one of the great things this season has been the way players have engaged with it. They've come in and given their time and spoken really honestly and said very interesting things. But there's only one player who's been so keen to come on that he's been texting me for the last few weeks asking, when can I be on and when are we going to do the interview? So it's great to finally be sitting down with Welshman Jamie Clark. Yeah, you right. Welcome along. The last time I saw you was at the shootout. We were having a drink on the final night and you whipped out your phone to show me all the episodes you'd listened to. So it seems you're our most loyal fan. Yeah, I think I am. Yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed them. I think um, we've done a great job. I think all the players, it's nice to hear some of the players' opinions and and how a lot of them think behind closed doors and things like that. And um, doing a lot of travelling as well, up and down the M4, M1. Uh, really got into podcasts, as a lot of people have over the last sort of probably year or two years with COVID. So yeah, it's been good. Great to have you on. Now, let's get this out of the way first. I'm going to try to say the name of your hometown. Mm-hmm. Clanetli. Rubbish. Is that all right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, pretty good. pretty good. Pretty good. It's the, it's the start of San Esli. Uh, you I see. Think. Um, um, we, we were far off. Yeah. I was a bit harsh. So you were far off. Yeah. Only a true Welshman could say it properly. Yeah. Now, it's a town with a huge amount of snooker heritage, most notably Terry Griffiths, the 1979 world champion. So how aware were you growing up of all that history there was in your town for snooker? Yeah, well, I, I obviously grew up in his club. I think the first, um, I think I went out with my dad, first of all, in, his, uh, in Terry Griffiths' matchroom. And um, I think I was seven or eight years old. And um, my dad gave me 50 start and he beat me. And then it sort of went to 30 start, then 10 start. And then I used to play, I used to play uh, 12 hours a day, every day if I didn't have school. And um, everyone knew who Terry Griffiths was. Everyone still does. He's still a legend of the town, you know. And you presumably know him very well then? Yeah, yeah. He was, um, the last sort of six, seven years mostly, um, he started coming into the coffee shop where me and my mate used to go. And uh, you'd, have me in one, you'd have me in one seat. You'd have Terry Griffiths in another seat, my mate in another seat. We'd all be on our laptops or, um, you know, just, just doing different stuff. And, um, yeah, so, so I've got quite close to him, yeah. Now tell me about winning the Welsh Amateur Championship, Jamie, because it's always been a hard tournament to win. And when you look at the list of players who have won it in the past and how long it's been around, there's a real sense of history surrounding it. Yeah, my, my dad was on to me for years saying it'd be nice to win it and everything. And um, when I first, I think it was got the semis, I think Di John beat me when I was 15 or 16. And then a couple of years later, I beat Lee Walker in the final. And uh, I didn't realise it was quite a big thing, but even some of the players, older players who have played in it um they've always really really wanted to win it and then my biggest thing at the time to be honest was to try and turn professional that was just a bit of a bonus so the night I actually won the uh the Welsh amateur championship um it was about 11 o'clock at night uh done the trophy and everything and I was on the road then to Sheffield and I arrived to Sheffield for um I was there for 10 days to practice for Q school and then I lost in the last round of Q school so um for me it was all about getting on the tour but it was a lovely bonus to win it and you have to play really well to win a tournament like that, don't you? Yeah, they do the first round at the start of the year, then the second round a month later, third round a month later, and then you've got um, you've got the quarter final, which is all on one day. Then the semi final is probably a week or two later. In um, they pick a venue and they put a new cloth on the table and everything. Um, I think it'll be Darren Morgan in the semi final, and then Lee Walker in the final. Um, so it was, it was good. Two players who give you absolutely nothing and mm. will battle all day long to beat you. So great achievement to win that one. But as you say, it was all about getting on the Pro Tour. And around that time, you had a very frustrating run of near misses in big amateur finals and tournaments to get on to the Tour. Yeah, it was insane. It was. I think I, start, I started trying when I was 16. Mum and my stepdad and were paying for everything, to pay my entry and pay my hotels and everything. And I think it was only until I got to about... 
I don't know the exact age, I must have been 17, 18, maybe even 19. And there was two or three ways a year you could try and turn pro. And one of them was you had to qualify through your Welsh seniors top four or something. Then you had to go to the European men's and you had to win one of the, either the European men's, the world amateur um, or Q school. And I think I lost in eight or nine finals or seven. I don't even know how many finals I lost in. I lost in five or six deciders. It was a very, very frustrating three or four years, yeah. So does that start to get in your head then and make it even harder? Yeah, after probably the, the <laughs> probably the sixth time, I I was so sick of losing. I lost in, I'll never ever forget it. And um, I lost to Martin O'Donnell 4-3 and I was 3-2 in front. I remember being 3-2 in front on a 23 break, popped in the blue, really nervous, obviously. I couldn't feel my own body. And I went into the pink and I stuck on the pink and I think a red went in. And he cleared up and then he won a great decider. And he was obviously really happy as he should be outside and celebrating. I just remember being in a ball on the floor <laughs> outside Ponds Forge, uh, just against the wall. And um, it was awful. It was one of the worst drives home I've ever had. And I thought, I, was, I always knew deep down it would happen one day. Um, but I think I showed a lot of strength and a lot of character to keep, keep on keeping on rather than giving up for the first or second hurdle. And having been so close so many times, I guess that means that when it finally did happen, you were probably the most jubilant player ever to qualify for professional status. Yeah, I think I am right then, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. It's strange, I've never really had the self-belief, um, weirdly, maybe to a lot of people, but never really felt any good at all. And I think that was a huge thing in probably the last round, just, just not believing. I thought I was good enough to do okay in the amateur circuit, but not good enough to turn pro. And that, that's what held me back, I think. I guess when you've been close so many times and not made it, it's inevitable you're going to start doubting yourself. I, I think so. I've always had it since I was a junior, and it frustrated the, the heck out of my, um, my stepdad, because he always rated me quite highly. Um, not, I don't think he was being um, favouritism or whatever, but it, was, it wasn't... Um, yeah, it's just strange. Just, it, just didn't have any self-belief. And then when I did turn pro, it was sort of... It was weirdly a surprise because I didn't think I was going to do it. But, yeah, I was obviously pleased. And we had the old, um, my stepdad always said, would say the old uh, Only Fools and Horses line. We've had worse days. <laughs> and we said it when we got in the car then. It was a really nice drive on. You didn't do that thing where you shook the car from side to side like it they did. It wasn't far off, yeah. That episode. <laughs> yeah. Just relief more than anything. So it was a great time to be turning pro, wasn't it? Because you talked to players who came on the circuit maybe 10 years or so before that. There weren't many tournaments. But when you came on, things were just exploding. The Home Nation series had just started. So a time of real opportunity in the game. Yeah, there was loads of tournaments. I think it was 15. Like I know a lot of people have come on this, like this podcast saying there was only six tournaments when they started, seven tournaments when they started. To me, there was just an influx. It was about 15 tournaments or something I, I, that I could play in. And um, again, I turned pro in my first year. And I think I lost, again, I think I lost six or seven deciders. Just couldn't pick up a win. Obviously, not much money. Um, just I living home with my mum and my stepdad. Um, and just really, really wanted to get a win to get going. And it took me, I think, I think it was something like 18 months or six months to get a win. And that's the thing, isn't it? People look at talented players like you, if you're going through a run like that, and they say, oh, he'll turn it round and he'll come good eventually. But what perhaps isn't considered sometimes is, in the meantime, you've still got to get by and you've still got to find a way of making a living. Yes, uh, it's, it's not easy, especially when you're starting off. You know, when, you, when you're young, you're full of ambition and everything, and still am. But you've still got to... It's the path you've chosen to try and make a living, I think. And when you're not earning a living and you're not doing... You're living with mum and dad, mum and stepdad in my position. Um, you are, you do start to think, well, how am I going to start earning a living? Maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I'm, I'm got any bottle. Maybe 
whatever it is. But um, yeah, it was, it was again turned pro, and it, it felt like I was just starting all over again. And you need good support like that, don't you? You need people to help you along and say, look, don't worry about the money side of things. We'll take care of you for a while, and you just concentrate on trying to get those results. Yeah, I was sort of scraping for the odd five hundred quid year to pay for this event, and I remember sending about five hundred emails out, I think, for just just trying to get some sort of help, just just to try and pay for the entry because it was entry fees at the time as well. Mm. That's been scrapped um, since, which must really help. Yeah, I think players. I think it's five grand a year, and mm. all the players are saving, um, which is which is which is awesome. Um, but yeah, when any anybody's to say the same thing when you're starting off. Um, you know, you, you you do need a bit of backing, but you also need a huge desire in your belly as well to, to do well because the game will knock you down because it's tough. And then, of course, in the midst of all that, COVID comes along and just throws everyone's plans into chaos. You really mm. needed something big to happen, and it did at the World Championship qualifiers in 2020. You qualified, and not only that, but you beat the highest-ranked player in the qualifiers in Joe Perry before going on to see off Sonny Akani in the final qualifying round. So up to that point, that must have been the real high point of your life. Yeah, it was. I think COVID was bonkers for everyone, isn't it? I think in March or April, I just turned into a complete reading freak and on on audiobooks and and everything. And I, I sort of spent three or four months indoors because obviously I wasn't working. I was taking the missus to work probably eight nine o'clock, coming home, spending all day home, picking up at five o'clock, and just couldn't do anything. I could go outside for a walk for twenty minutes, and that was it. So, but I was reading a lot of books. That it was one of them's called The Magic of Believing. One of them's called Think and Grow Rich. Um, that's the one that Peter Ebden talked about when he won the World Championship 20 years ago he mentioned that very book Think and Grow Rich okay it was Think and Grow Rich The Magic of Believing there's a guy called Kevin Trudeau who was Mm. unbelievable Um, sort of changed my life a bit because I was just absorbed in that in that world and you know at the time obviously no money coming and everything I started building a little mini business online with eBay and Amazon um, just trying to get some sort of income And and what were you trading? it was just any products really either buying a load in bulk or or drop shipping them or whatever there. And um, I really, really enjoyed that. It got me out of bed in the morning, got me some structure, and I really wanted a new car. It sounds a really strange thing to say, but I really wanted a new car at the time because got, I got the house with the missus. And, um, yeah, and, and, that, and I, thought, I thought it was going to come from that business, but and then all of a sudden some miracle happened and I managed to get to the qualifiers and get the crucible. So in a way, did that take the pressure off you? Because now you weren't just relying on snooker for money. Maybe that enabled you to free things up a bit and go and play your true game? Yeah, um, I, don't, I don't know. Possibly. I don't know. Um, I wasn't earning a lot of money. I think it was only like I started building up really slowly, really, really slowly. But I started doing all right. Um, and then I had this sort of... I was trying to text a couple of Welsh pros for a game and they were either couldn't get in the club or... They were playing somebody else, and I think I was probably 500, I think I had 500 quid to my name at the time, and I was like, you know what, I'm just going to go to Sheffield and have a week in the academy, and just burn the 500 quid and hotels and the academy, and just give it just give it a really good bash, and um, all I wanted to do was win my first game all, uh, against Mitchell Mann, that's all I wanted to do, just to get a bit of money behind me for the summer, go to Cove School and cross your fingers, Um and yeah, I, don't, I can't, can't, can't believe the result in the end. So you're through to the Crucible then. That's taken care of all your tour survival worries. You've mm. already guaranteed your card. And then you arrive, and it's the thing that every young snooker player dreams about, stepping out to play in the Crucible. One thing I'm sure you never imagined was that there would be nobody there. But that was the time we were living in. Yeah, that took, I've had a few interviews with that situation, and it didn't make 
a blind bit of difference to me at all. There was nobody there. I was at the crew. I qualified for the crucible. I, I didn't know how. To, to the, it was, I was suffering a bit of imposter syndrome because I thought it wasn't really me or shouldn't really deserve to be there. Um, but it was it was an amazing experience, just having your own dressing room. And I was up there. I was up in Sheffield for about five weeks because I had ten, seven or ten days before the qualifiers. I had a week in the qualifiers. Then I had a week break because then I had to wait to play for all the matches to play first. Then I'd play Mark Allen. Um, and in the end, I was, I was just up there for about five weeks, I think. But ev- everything I could possibly have dreamt for it was it was that good I, I loved it I remember being on another podcast just before the championship and I was asked who was my tip for the title and I actually said Mark Allen so thanks for <laughs> making me look really stupid by knocking him out in the first round but it was some achievement wasn't it because he made five centuries mm. so how on earth did you manage to pull off such a result on your debut I think I think all the shackles were off when I'd beaten Akani to qualify you know, I had 20 grand, I'd qualified for the Crucible, I had two years on the main tour. There was, there was, if I'd got beat 10 nil, which I fully expected, or 10 1, or something that a lot of people have done in the past, I'm happy days. So I think he made two tens the first two frames. I thought, okay, this would be an early one. Then I made my highest break, I think it was on the tour, I think it was, the highest, 136. Then I won the next frame, needing three snookers. It was just, things were just happening for me. And, I played really well, but I don't know how I, I fended off five centuries. Now, he, he probably made a couple of 60s, 70s, 80s as well. So it sounds like the game of my life, but I don't think I was just playing really, really well. I think you have to to get through all the qualifiers, you know, and I was, I was probably a lot sharper than Mark as well. You've got to play well to put yourself in that position. You don't win matches at the Crucible now without playing well, but you've still got to overcome that hurdle right at the end of actually getting across the line against a top player. So was that something that you found difficult or were you in such a groove by then that you just sailed across the line? No, it was every every match I think I've ever played in at the end is always difficult. Sometimes you can stand up, you can feel terrible, but you can still stand up and make a hundred break. Um, but it, I remember I was watching a little bit back when I came home and Stephen Henry said, you know, he does, he hasn't showed any nerves, he hasn't showed any this, that. And I was, I couldn't breathe from ball one, <laughs> from the first frame. And I was nine, eight, and if you watch the I know nobody would, but if you watch the last couple of frames of that match, it was I should have gone nine six up, and then I went eight seven, then I was fifty nil down, and then I went nine seven up, and it was bonkers. Um, but I think I made a really good forty, from what I remember, a forty break or a thirty break, or some, it was something small. But I can't remember any of it because it was just so so much pressure. Never felt pressure like it in my life. I, that's including all the times the term pro. Just a different everything that everybody said over the years. It made sense. They were saying it's. Alvin Manners told me after I won the match, he said, it's not snooker, is it? I was like, no. <laughs> mm. It just it, it just felt like a theatre, which is what it is. Yeah, he's always got the line. He really mm. understands things, doesn't he? Mm, doesn't Mark he? is a great loser, actually, when he is beaten. He's always very gracious. Did he speak to you after the match? Yeah, he was amazing. Absolutely. Like, I won, obviously, I'd beaten him 10-8. Everyone was going home. At home was going bonkers. And even in the dressing room, when I went, we were packing our kids, we were going to do all the media duties and he just tapped me in the back saying you honestly really deserve that you played you played outstanding and even after I'd done an hour and a half of media duties um, my dad and my stepmom funny enough came up when I qualified and um, they went outside waiting for me by the door and they were in the freezing cold for an hour and a half because it was just so much so much to do afterwards and I was walking past um, going back to the hotel and he was he was having a drink and, and, he, and he came running up the street behind me um, he said, Jamie, Jamie, Jamie. And he obviously he put his hoodie on and everything. I didn't know who it was. And 
he was he was amazing. I, I couldn't believe how gracious he was because obviously he was probably one of the favourites for the title because he was playing so well. Well, I thought so. I tipped him. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm just rubbing it in now. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, yeah. he was amazing. He was amazing. Honestly, I, I couldn't. I can't. Um, uh, I, I don't want to say thank him enough, but I, I'm, I can't speak highly enough of him. And not only is he a great loser, he is of course a great winner, as he's proved so many times mm-hmm. over the years. But it was you who went through, and not him, to the next round, and you were up against Anthony McGill. Now let's come to it because you know we're we're going to be talking next. Yeah, yeah. You went seven two up, and then there was an incident. So yeah. what was your take on it? Uh, obviously, that's all I've had for the last probably eighteen months. Is is, is that you know as is, is Anthony McGill and what happened and blah blah blah. But um, I think I was playing Mark in the in the round before, and I we had played loads and loads of shots where it was tit for tat, and he just stood in front of the table and one of them because I was just rolling into the pack and I just thought because it's such a tight environment uh, Brendan Moore um, refereed my first game with Mark Allen and he said look it's really tight now just go wherever you can to sort of uh, where you can get out of the way because if I was with the incident with, with McGill um, if I would have walked back to my seat if you look back Jan Bahas has stood where my seat is and McGill is playing the shot so I thought He's playing the shot from the yeah, from the green pocket to the opposite corner pocket. And I stood sort of behind the camera and there's a little, not a wall, but a little set. I thought, right, just get tucked in as much as I possibly can and try and not basically not put him off. And he's down on the shot and he's got up and he's just said, you're in my eye line. And I thought, like, I can't be. I can't, I can't be. But then I thought, you know, there's, a, there's a few things on the tour that happen sometimes where, you know, you, you've got to try and, I don't know if it's, if it's trying to put people off or sometimes it can happen, you can do it by accident. If you have a drink of water, it crackles and little things that can you can do by mistake. And um, and we should say, anyone who's not been to the Crucible, mm. there isn't room to breathe in there. It no, is insane. so tight. It's insane. And looking back, if I was being ultra critical, I could have maybe walked around the whole length of the table and gone and stood behind the brown spot. But then I thought I might have been too close to him. So... Do you know what? To this day, I don't really know what I could have done. I don't know. I don't know what his intentions were. I don't know if I, I was right. He was wrong. He was right. I was. I don't know. So it was just one of those uh, things that started off as something small and yeah. kind of escalated, didn't it? In I a way so, that yeah. probably nobody wanted it to. No, I certainly didn't, and I'm sure he probably didn't as well. But you know, I was I was seven two in front, um, feeling great. Obviously, fancied winning, fancied having a, a good run in the tournament. And to this day, I don't really know what. Maybe his his intentions were. I I certainly don't have any intentions, but I don't I don't I don't know to be honest though. To this day, what to, what to think of it? <laughs> you won the frame actually. To yeah. go eight two in front, yeah. and you put something out on Twitter. I think eight four. Yeah. During the interval at eight yeah. four, you want to dance? Let's dance. Yeah, that was brilliant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought I just uh, I just thought it was it was a bit of bit of fun, and um, I done it against Mark Allen. I was tweeting to Rihanna Evans. I think in. And Mark Williams, I don't know if it's Mark Williams, or Jimmy White, I think, um, there's, I think I said there's only one Welsh whirlwind because they were trying to think of a nickname because I got the Crucible. And I, I didn't really care if I won or lost. I, I, if I went home, great. If I was there, great. Because I was on a free roll. So to me, I was having fun. And I just didn't think there was anything wrong with that, really. So what happened after that then? The match obviously turned around. Mm. Were you thrown off course by the incident? Or did he just start to play better? Not, honestly, on, on my heart, I just felt... To go, when I went 8-2 up, I thought, okay, that, that that could have potentially put me off that, that the incident. And then I thought, right, I've won that frame, so that's put to bed. Um, there was probably two frames I was trying too hard, but the rest, I think it was... It's a long match, these 
that no, my lack of experience in long matches, I haven't got any experience. So if I would have known that it was, it is such a long match, and said, right, just try and nick a frame every two or try and nick a frame every three. But when I lost two or three in a row, it was a ge- it was a genuine sort of mental spiral because I thought, well, I've lost two or three. That doesn't normally happen. But then I never play best of twenty five matches. So yeah, I don't I don't think it put me off at all, really. In in my in my opinion, but it it might have done a little bit because it went from eight two to eight seven or eight L. So maybe if there was bad blood between two players in a football match, chances are at the end of it they'd still be giving each other the verbals and maybe even a few punches being thrown as they came mm. off. But you guys actually set a really good example because I think you hugged each other at the end, didn't you? I just think you know you, you've got snooker. It's a, it's a gentleman's game, and but but it it is one of the hardest sports mentally I think there is out there, and I think. You've got footballers who have one little instant, they start all kicking off, and you've got tennis players throwing their rackets everywhere, and snooker players want to do that as well. They, they really do. They want to throw the chalk or throw their cue everywhere, but nobody seems to do it. And I just thought, I'm in his eye line. Maybe I was, but I didn't mean to. Maybe I was in his eye line. I thought, you know, a bit, bit of whatever you want to call it. I thought it was, I thought it was great. I thought it was got people talking. It was, it was good fun. And, yeah, I think I think at the end, I think I give him a mini hug. I said all the best. You really deserve it. One of the best matches players I've ever played, apart from the top names. And I think he's a nice guy, phenomenal match player. I was like, okay, go home now. I played golf for three months. <laughs> and you recently played again, actually, you mm. and Anthony McGill for the first time since then. And we all know what it's like on the tour. You can't avoid people. You're going to bump into each other all the time. So Everything. how's it been since? Everything okay between fine. the two of you? Yeah, yeah fine. Good. Like, there's always... You see breakfast, so you see every single tournament, you see nearly every player. So, mm. to me, I've got no problem at all. Now, we see a lot of players who go to the Crucible, they do really well. And bottom line is, you got within one frame of being in the World Quarter Final. And then the next season comes along, and it came along very quickly, actually, in that case, because the championship had been put back. And they go back to struggling for wins. So, has that been frustrating for you, that in the season that follows, you didn't perhaps quite pick up from there? No, I I totally disagree. I I thought I I thought I hadn't won a match for on the tour. Probably I think I'd won a couple of matches in eighteen months, and then I qualified for the Crucible. So to me, it was like a mini breakthrough in my life financially, and just trying to do okay. And I think I won loads and loads of first. I think I've won. I think I won eight, ten first rounds, and I won the second round as well against people I hadn't beaten, like you know Ali Carter, Matt Selt. Uh, I beat you know Ricky Wald and all these players. I, I thought I had loads. I thought I had really really good wins. I beat Martin O'Donnell and I had a great match with Kurt Mathlin in the UK Championship. I thought I'd actually done myself quite a mm. bit of justice going into it. But a lot of people were saying I was underachieving. But to me, I thought I was doing really well. We- I think, weirdly, like you know. In a way, though, just to clarify, I think maybe it was a compliment to you because everyone maybe, talks yeah. about how talented you are, mm. and I think maybe expectations. Was it a case that people expected too much of you maybe that following season? Yeah. Because you played so well in Sheffield? I frustrated my stepdad to the, to the brim with it because I have absolutely no self-belief whatsoever. But when I'm out there, I look quite good sometimes. But I, I personally think I'm doing quite well. But then people might say to me, oh, I expect you to do that or expect you to do that. I'm thinking, okay, well, I'm getting there slowly in my little head, my, my own world. And I stand out there now and the penny's starting to drop where I can actually play the game and I could go deep in a lot of tournaments but I think it just takes longer for some people than others but um, to me I done, I've, I've done well but to other people maybe I could have done a lot more so who knows it could, it could come in the next year or two years or something but it, it is starting to penny is starting to drop with me now a little bit You did go deep at the English Open earlier in the season you beat mm. Tep Chai on New we know what a good player he is so that's mm. a really good result 
And then you played Ronnie O'Sullivan. Now it finished 4-0. So what was your take on that? Fine again. I, I beat Zach Schuette to qualify. Then I beat Mark Joyce 4-0. Tep Chaya 4-1. I felt, I felt really, really good. I thought my game was in good shape. I thought I was playing well. And it was the first time in my whole career that I've actually looked at a tournament and thought, yeah, I can probably win this. I know it's some silly because I lost 4-0 the next game to Ronnie. But in my honestly, in my head, it was the first time I phoned my stepdad Phil and just gone, yeah, I can, I can probably win this tournament. And even though I've lost 4-0, it does sound silly, but that was, that was the first time in my career that I felt I could win a tournament that, that, that when I lost, after I lost to Ronnie, before I lost to Ronnie, sorry. But there seems to be a bit of a contradiction there because mm. you're saying I felt I could go on and win the tournament. That would have been massive to mm. win the English Open and great to think that. Mm. But then you talk also about this lack of self-belief. Mm. So is it a case you're fighting a battle in your head that part of you knows how good you are and mm. you must be to come as far as you have and then there's this other voice in your head that's maybe making you doubt? Is that the way it is? Yeah, it's more, for me, it's more dealing with it. Like I'm not, I'm not absolutely gone in my own head. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy in my personal life. I know... I know I know the game quite well. Um, to me, it's more um, dealing with it rather than ignoring it. I used to ignore it when I was a kid and just saw, you know, and just get on with it. But now I'm now I can feel really bad, maybe um, if that's where to put it. But still stand up and make two tons in a row or something or two hundreds in a row. So um, I'm, I've won quite a lot of matches f- for me, I think, and I think I'm I'm on the good I'm on a good road now to hopefully go deep in a lot of tournaments. Um, and I, and I now. As I said, the penny's starting to drop. I, I actually believe I can do well now. So in a funny sort of way, you talk about having no self-belief whatsoever, mm-hmm. I think was the expression mm-hmm. you used earlier mm-hmm. on. But it doesn't seem to be getting in your way. You still seem to be able to go out and perform in spite of that. Yeah, I said, read, I read a lot of books 18 months ago. Uh, still do. Um, and it just sort of, just concentrate on what you want and not what you don't want. Like, there's a lot of players, well, me, me I think, I'd probably say... You know, most players are quite. Well, they worry a lot, and I think that it's so important just to be relaxed when you're playing because the game is so tough. It's so tough. We're going to come now, Jamie, to what I call the quick fire round. And as a regular listener, you'll know mm-hmm. what this is all about. I just throw a few topics at you. Okay. Bit of fun. You just say whatever comes into your head. Your favourite movie? Uh, I hear this one on a couple of podcasts, and I had to answer ready. Dumb and Dumber, or <laughs> as. Mark Joyce said in the last one, uh, Shawshank Redemption. Wonderful the, film. Yeah, so that they're my two. Um, Got one silly one and one really good one. Nice blend. Players you would go on a night out with? Uh, Stephen Allworth, um, Jordan Brown. Um, there's a couple of players I see now and again who are really good fun. Um, yeah, about, about, there's about five or six, but uh, mainly uh, two good friends, Allworth and uh, Jordan Brown. One place in the world you've not been to that you'd really love to visit? Um, my fiance went there for two weeks in January. It'd be Miami or Florida, uh, either of those two. I've been to, uh, I've been to about 40 odd countries. I sort of know what I'd like. Um, yeah, probably probably America, but like a nice part. If you go to Miami, bring the suntan lotion. I put a lot of it on. I got absolutely destroyed with the what, sunburn there. What, one side note to that, um, my, say my missus, she went out there and her sister lives out there and they know all the tourists because all of them are wearing coats. Uh, sorry, all, all the residents are wearing uh, coats in 26 degrees and all the all the tourists are uh, sunbathing so that was quite funny when you said that your favorite book you've mentioned a few earlier yeah uh, think and grow rich the magic of believing uh, the magic of thinking big um and as a man thinketh and your perfect day off uh 
get up in the morning, go for a coffee, play golf 10 till 2, a couple of regulars there, um, go home, make a nice dinner, glass of wine, uh, movie. A couple of things to pick up on there as we move on. You've mentioned golf a couple of times, so yeah. how good are you? I've heard this as well. <laughs> I'd say I'm all right. Uh, I'm Come on, give us a handicap. 14 and a half, 15. Okay, that's pretty good. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay. But I, play, I play a lot in the summer. Um, yeah, the last time I played was 15.2 or something. So, yeah. Nothing wrong I'm with okay. that at all. You mentioned your fiancé there. So, uh, is a wedding date in the diary? Yeah, in about 18 months. Uh, we've been looking for venues. Uh, we found one beautiful place in Cardigan called the Cliff Hotel. Uh, so, I think we're going to go there and uh, hopefully be a lovely day. How long have you been together? Four years now. Uh, so, funny enough, when I turned pro, it, I met her two or three weeks before turning pro, so I don't know if that had anything to do with it. She thinks it does, but I don't think mm-hmm. it does. Um, yeah, she's really got a, a stable attitude. Uh, I have as well. Uh, just made my life very happy uh, back home. Uh, we have good banter, good relationship, a lot of common interests, um, and we, we got on really, really well, and I definitely think it's helped with the snooker. Not that I thought it would, but it definitely has, because... If I get beat in a bad match or win a good match, if I go home, everything's the same. So dishes still need to be done and everything. So mm. it's um, it's really stabilised me. Yeah. We've talked about her so much. We've got to give her name. So uh, Marcelina. My nan had dementia. Um, she got diagnosed four years ago, and she was the deputy manager in that care home. So uh, I used to make this joke, just saying, oh, "I'm just going in to see Marcy." I mean, I mean, my nan <laughs> <laughs> to my mum. So um, yeah, she she passed away a year ago, but uh, in a in a little in a little family in, in our family we'd have to say this what she passed on to me what my nan passed on to me with it was her so it was quite a nice little um thing that happened there like you know. yeah great legacy to leave yeah. behind absolutely yeah. let's talk about the shootout mm. because you've really thrived in it you've been a semi-finalist you were in the quarterfinals this year but the time you got to the semis you played on new and he was just flying through that event and you reacted really well to the big break he made in the semi-final. I think you were sitting on the set and swinging your legs yeah. around. Yeah, it was brilliant. That was that again. I won my first ever professional match against Knop on Sankem uh, two weeks before, and it was such a relief to have a bit of money behind me. And I went there, and it, <laughs> I mentioned it again. The first time I ever went, with my fiance to the first time she ever came to a tournament was the shootout, and, I, and she said to me, uh, "What do I need?" I said, "Oh look, well, one top, one pair of trousers, you'd be fine." <laughs> and I was the same. So we were we were going around the dry cleaners, getting everything washed every every round because I didn't think I was going to stay there long. But um, yeah, I did. Re- I, d- I don't know what it is about the shooter. I feel I feel really nervous during the tournament because obviously when you get a bit later on, the money romps up as well and the ranking points. But I just feel comfortable. I just think the event's amazing, and I'd loved. I, I did ask Jason Ferguson, but I don't think he copped on to the idea. I don't think, but. I, everyone I know, especially back home, every single person I know watches it because it's so much fun, a bit like the darts. And as good as the tour is, and it's it's the best, obviously, it's ever been, and, and it's been great. I just think the shootout's so much fun. I think there should be maybe a series of three of them a year. You know, I know I'm not much of a voice to, to put that on, but I think um, I'd love to. I'd love that to be more because it's a lot more relaxing than the main tour. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because who's the ultimate shootout specialist? Mm. Michael Holt, mm. another player who talks about maybe getting in his own way. And Is it a case that you go to that event, you don't have time to think, you just have to rely on your instincts and your talent, and 
maybe that's something you can learn from. Maybe apply those things in other events. Yeah, before I got the semis the first time, I said to my, my, me, my it was when the average shot clock um, got mm. brought out, and I was out to 29 seconds, and I was thinking in practice, there's nowhere near 29 seconds. A lot of players have said, because you can get in your own way. So I thought, right, just play as quick as you can. And I think what suits me really well is being like a football match. If you're 1-0 up, you've got a shot, shut up shop, or 2-0 up, you've got to, you, you can run down the time. And I quite enjoy making a 20-30 break and shutting up shop. That's probably why I don't make many breaks. As we had a chat afterwards, um, I think I won my uh, last 16 or something. I quite like the fact that you haven't got to win. You've got to just do what you can and play really clever. I'm not saying I'm clever, but I think it just suits me that. Just making a, enough of a break and playing certain shots in certain ways, I, I enjoy that part. It's about getting the job done, really, isn't it? However yeah, yeah. you arrive at that. Yeah. So how far can you ultimately go, Jamie? Because it's interesting listening to you talking about self-belief, as we have a lot here. I don't know anyone in the game who doesn't think you're really talented. Everyone says Jamie Clark can really play the game. So what do you think? How good can you be? How high up the rankings can you get? Can you be a tournament winner? That's a really, really good question. Um, it, it's, again, I feel really, really flattered and, and really strangely uncomfortable when people say I'm talented or very good or and, and to, to people they think I'm lying or they think I'm but I just don't know what it is but I no, think I, I can tell you're genuine but yeah, I'm really yeah. surprised by it because everyone I know says yeah, Jamie me, can yeah. really play it shocks me a bit when people say oh you know he's if I had a really good win and people go yeah yeah I fancied you for that I'm like really uh, to me it's an amazing win um I if I was to really be honest I think I could definitely go far in tournaments now um maybe not two years ago but now the position I'm in mentally and um, where, where I am in the rankings, about 50 odd. I really think I'm going in stages. I don't think I'll leapfrog. I think I'm definitely going in stages. I think I could definitely be a top 32 player, I think. Um, and you can only go as, go as far as you can see. And when you get there, you sort of see further. And I think I couldn't go and just be a tournament winner now. But I think in a couple of years, I, I definitely would think I'd like. I think I could, yeah. I think I, I think I, I think I could win tournaments in the next five years, yeah. Progress can take a long time, mm. but time is on your side, isn't it? You've got plenty of time. You can be patient about it. Yeah, I feel like I've been around forever. But I'm 27, uh, 28 later on in the year. Um, I think now it's it's um, a good time in my life. I'm settled personally. I know what makes me happy and what doesn't make me happy. I know my game's in good shape. I, I get good practice in. I don't I don't play a lot, but I practice when I do practice. I practice properly before tournaments. And if I was to be honest, I think I could win a tournament in the next five years. I think everyone goes at different paces. You've got some players who will just go and win a tournament, and that's fantastic. But I think with me, it's got to go up in stages. Um, but you never know. I could get to a quarterfinal, semi-final. Like if I'd have beaten Ronnie that time, I knew I'd have had... I remember the, the draw. I'd have had Luca in the next round, who I've, I've um, known for 20 years. It could have been then. But it's only seven matches in a row. I say only seven matches. It's very, very difficult. But I think... I think I could do it, yeah, in the next five years, I think, yeah. Well, I love having Welsh players on because I think you all sound great behind a microphone. Absolutely. <laughs> we don't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I absolutely love the accent and uh, it's been fascinating listening to you. So thanks for joining us on the World Snooker Tour podcast. Thank you, Mike. Cheers. And keep listening. <laughs> next time on the World Snooker Tour podcast, it's Newcastle's Sam Craigie. Among so much else, he'll be recalling a very successful, but very brief, experiment with playing in glasses. Just decided they weren't that necessary. They did help a little bit, um, just on certain shots. Um, but like after wearing them for like a few hours, I started like giving you a bit of pain and stuff with like how tight they are. 
and I just, just took them off. I don't need glasses. I, mean, I can't see, but they do help a little bit. They obviously helped a lot that day. Though, <laughs> yeah, because yeah. That was the yeah. first time you'd ever worn them, was it, in a match? Possibly, yeah. Uh, uh, that would have been, yeah. Um, cause I think I, I had a, a nice run in China as well or something when I was wearing them. I had a good few matches with them on and then took them off. <laughs> so that's coming up next week on the World Snooker Tour podcast. And don't forget to check out our bonus content, The 147, rounding up the week's snooker news in 147 seconds every Tuesday. Until then, thanks so much for listening and goodbye.